We come this morning in our study to uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. And I've entitled today's message, From Warning uh, to Encouragement. A famous German writer said, Correction does much, but encouragement does more. He went on to say, that when encouragement comes after censure or criticism, it's like the sun after a shower. And I think we would all agree that affirmation goes a long way, and we should actually practice a lot more of it uh, than we do. A pat on the back provides a lot more motivation than what? A kick uh, in the pants. Now, in Hebrews 5.11, all the way through chapter 6, verse 8, the section immediately before what we'll look at today, the writer of Hebrews was giving his readers a kick in the pants. (laughs) He gave them a very strong rebuke and warning. Look in your sermon notes at a just very brief summary of these verses uh, where the writer brings correction through negative warning. Uh, The writer rebuked the Hebrew Christians for having become dull and sluggish in their response to God's Word, which had caused them to regress into spiritual immaturity. Let me just pause right there, because let's put this in the context of what they were coping with as believers. And what were they coping with? Persecution. Uh, They were living in a society that was hostile to their Christian faith. And that persecution had been recently ramped up. They were literally in jeopardy of being tortured, imprisoned, and even put to death. And not only mom and dad, but the kids as well. Very similar to what's been going on in the Middle East in recent times. And so, in light of that persecution, they were tired. They were afraid. They were weary. And instead of advancing in their Christian faith... And standing firm, they were beginning to shrink back. And they were even toying with the idea of maybe we should just go back to our old Judaism. Remember, these were Hebrew Christians. It would be much safer. So he commanded them, going on with the summary in your notes, he commanded them, the writer commands them to press on to maturity and warn them of the danger of falling away from God through repeated episodes of distrust and disobedience. And he tells them in such a case, a believer cannot lose his salvation, but there are consequences, right? We saw this the last two weeks. He will lose the rest of faith. In other words, the peace that God desires to give us in life's trials. You'll lose the valuable lessons that God desired to teach, the many blessings God intended to give, and, of course, the opportunity to earn eternal rewards. And as we saw, if you develop a pattern of distrust and disobedience, God can even shut the door to repentance, as He did to the Old Testament wilderness generation that's referred to in Hebrews 3 and 4, and He can consign the believer to live in a spiritual wilderness the rest of his life here on earth. Again, not losing his salvation, but knowing that discipline and that chastening of God. But immediately after this strong rebuke and warning, the writer totally changes his tone 
and, his, and expresses deep love and confidence for these Hebrew Christians. And folks, there's a tremendous lesson to be learned here in dealing with people. Rebuke and warning is often necessary. I mean, many of us in this room are parents, and you know that rebuke and warning is often necessary. We read in Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed, and faithful are the wounds of a friend. Uh, King David wrote in Psalm 141, verse 5, Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is like oil upon my head, and do not let me refuse it. But the lesson to learn is this. Although rebuke is often necessary, it should only be used when the ultimate motive and goal is to build people up. To build people up. So look with me in your sermon notes to discover how the writer of Hebrews went from correction through negative warning to affirmation through positive encouragement. And the first thing that he did was to share commendation. So that's the first point in your notes. He shared commendation. Follow along in your Bibles as I read verses 9 and 10 of Hebrews 6 where he gives this commendation. He says, But beloved... We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Now, just pause right there. See, he acknowledges that he realizes his tone had just been very harsh. It had been very stern the way he had been talking to them. But he wants them to know what? I love you. He calls them beloved. This very enduring term. And he says, although I was stern, although I was coming with rebuke and warning, I want you to know it's only because I'm rooting for you. I'm wanting you to win in the Christian life. I'm wanting you to know God's full blessing and not to miss anything that God has for you. So everything I just said was out of a motive of great love for you. And then what does he express? Confidence in them. He says, I am convinced of things what? Better concerning you, things that accompany salvation. In other words, what's he saying? Despite the warning I just gave you, I'm confident you are going to press on maturity. I'm confident you're not going to fall away. I'm confident that you're going to produce the fruits that you would expect to accompany salvation, and you're not going to produce the thorns and thistles of distrust and disobedience. Now, of course, that raises the question, well, how could the writer have such confidence in these Hebrew Christians in light of the severe warning he had just given them? And the answer is because they had already demonstrated the good fruit of serving others and were continuing to do so. There was the evidences of Christ in their life. Look at verse 10. He says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work, And the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. So he has this confidence in them because he can see the evidence of Jesus working in their lives. They have a history. And in their history, they had demonstrated the authenticity of their Christianity. For example, 
uh, turn over to Hebrews chapter 10 quickly. And he, and in Hebrews 10, he's reflecting back on their early days of their Christian faith. And he says in verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, that would be a synonym for conversion, when you became converted, when you came into the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. So the reason he has this confidence, yes, right now they're, they're on shaky grounds. And right now their, their faith is faltering. And, and they're struggling. And they're sort of at a crossroads. But the writer, he knows their history. He knows that they have a track record of faithfulness. He has seen Jesus work in this group of people. And that gave him the confidence that God's going to continue to work. And he even is expressing confidence in these Hebrew Christians. Not only is God at work, but you're going to respond. And I know you are. And I have confidence in you. Then the writer goes from commendation to what? Exhortation. That's the second point in your notes. Exhortation in verses 11 and 12. So follow along as I read these two verses. And he says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice three exhortations that he gives in these two verses. First, he shares his desire for them. And what is his desire? that they show the same diligence in practicing faith and patience in life's trials that they were giving to their what? Service to one another. In other words, he says, take that energy that you're giving to service. Take that act, and you apply that to faith, to patience in life's trials, and you'll be blessed for it. The second exhortation that he gives them is he reminds them of the danger. There's this, he reflects back to the warning. He says, that you may not be sluggish. That word sluggish is the identical same word translated dull of hearing in chapter 5 and 11. Remember, this is what he accused these Hebrew Christians of being, dull of hearing. Because of their worry, because of their anxiety, they had shrunk back. And they had become sluggish in responding to God, in being attentive to God, maintaining their allegiance to God. And so he reminds them of the warning that he gave them. Now, let me make an important observation, and I think this is a very important one to make. Although they gave extreme diligence to serving others, which the writer affirms, they were still in danger of falling away. Because of failing to practice reliance on God in their life's trials, which was evidenced, as we've already seen in previous messages, in worry and complaining. Now, hear me now. No Christian can be content with just a lot of activity for God and a lot of service for God. 
Now, that does not go unnoticed, as we just read. God is not unjust. He will remember every act that's done in His name, and there will be reward. But more important than all of that is maturity. And we've defined in this study what maturity is, and it is what? Becoming more like Jesus Christ. Becoming more loving. Becoming more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, greater self-control. These are the qualities that God is after. And you take our church. This church is just absolutely incredible when it comes to service, when it comes to showing love. I've been here 37 years. How many times have I said this from the pulpit? I've never known this church to be confronted with a challenge where you haven't stepped up to the plate and you've met that challenge. And I commend you and I praise you for that. But all I'm trying to say Let's realize there's more to the Christian life than just service and showing kind. We want to reflect the very character of our Christ. We want to make sure that in the midst of our service, we're becoming more like Jesus. And we're not producing the thorns and thistles of worry and complaining and self selfishness. Look at the third thing that he exhorts them with, to imitate and we said, I want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherited the promises of God. And once again, and we've, we've seen this over and over again the last few weeks, again we see the antidote to spiritual immaturity. The antidote to being dull of hearing and sluggish. And the antidote is to practice trust and obedience in God's Word, which produces perseverance in life's trials, which in turn leads to the fulfillment of God's promise. The writer then provides confirmation. That's the third point in your notes. He goes from commendation to exhortation, and then he gives confirmation in verses 13 and 18 by providing the example of Abraham. He says, okay, I'm asking you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherited the promises of God. Well, here's a good one to imitate, Abraham, who through faith and patience saw the fulfillment of God's promise. Look at verses 13 and 15 first. He says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear, since God could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Now, what's this referring to? Most of you know, God promised Abraham and his wife Sarah a son. And he told them that through that son, they would have what? Innumerable descendants. Remember, God took him out into the night sky, said, look up into the sky. And he said, you couldn't even begin to count all the stars in that sky. Well, your descendants will exceed that. They will be more than could ever be counted. And I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to use your family to be a blessing. to the earth. And that's the purpose of the Christian life, for God to bless us, not for us, but to what? To bless others. That's the purpose of this after-mentoring school program. We just don't want to sit here in this community and just enjoy the Christian faith. No, we're here for a purpose. God has planted us here. And so it's our responsibility as a church to walk as Jesus walked into our community, to extend His presence, to express His character, to get involved in the school and the lives of these children that are at risk, and to see that we have something to offer them 
that can make a difference, not only in their lives, but their families' lives. And there are, so other, more, there are many, many other ministries that we could provide as an example of that. Well, when God gave uh, Abraham the promise, you remember how old Abraham was when he gave him the promise? He was 75, and Sarah was 65. You remember how old they were when God fulfilled the promise? Abraham was 100, and Sarah was 90. 25 years is a long time to wait on God to make good on a promise. But although Abraham had his ups and downs, bottom line, when you step back and look at the record of his life, he trusted God, and he waited. Uh, Turn over, keep your finger there in Hebrews 6, turn over to a great cross-reference, Romans 4. Romans 4 that talks about this. Romans chapter 4, look at verses uh, 18 through 21. It says, in hope against hope, he believed, referring to Abraham, he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith... He contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Amen? In other words, folks, and it's a little bit what we talked about last week, we have to fight the good fight of faith. We are going to struggle with fears and worry and anxiety. That's an inevitable reality living on planet Earth. But it's not like we're hapless victims in this. We have an opportunity in the midst of those struggles to choose to trust God. And that's what Abraham did. It says he looked at the deadness of his body, at the deadness of Sarah's womb. He realized this is a biological impossibility. But he says, yet with respect to the promise, he says he refused to stagger in unbelief. In other words, he gave himself a good talking to. And he says, wait a minute. My confidence is in a God, and there's nothing impossible for him. He's a God of miracles. And so instead of staggering in unbelief, he what? He chose. He made a conscientious decision. I choose to believe on God. I choose to trust Him and to wait on Him. And praise God that Abraham did. Because they were wonderfully blessed. A new dad at 100, new mom at 90, with a little baby named Isaac. They fought the good fight of faith. And the thing that you need to see in verses 13 and 15 is this fact that God not only gave them a promise, but He gave them oath. He swore that He would keep His promise. Because what happened, you remember, when that Isaac was a young lad, God commanded Abraham to do something that seemed very contrary to what, every, what God had been doing. He told him what? He said, take your son to Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer your son there as a burnt offering. You know what that meant? It meant he would slice his throat's, uh, son's throat, and then after he killed his son, he would burn his son as a burnt offering. 
And he says, you take that boy, you take him to my, and you offer him as a burnt offering. And the scriptures are, it says that Abraham, what? He rose early. He wasn't sluggish. He wasn't dull of hearing. It would have been a good time to be dull of hearing and a little sluggish. But he promptly obeyed God. Why? Because he trusted God. Matter of fact, later in the book of Hebrews, we're, we're told that he believed that if he would have killed Isaac, that God would have what? Raised him from the dead because God is a keeper of his promises. And you remember, as he raised the knife to his son, God stayed his hand. He said, Abraham, stop. And you remember, then he looked, and there was a ram caught in the thicket. That would be the sacrifice. Beautiful picture of Jesus as our substitute. And then he makes this comment to Abraham. He says, Abraham, now I know you fear me because you wouldn't even withhold that which was most precious to you, that son of promise that you had waited all those years for more. And that, then that's when he gave him this oath that we read in Hebrews 6.14, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. So the point that the writer is emphasizing is that Abraham had a promise and an oath from God. And it was that promise and that oath that gave Abraham the confidence to trust and to wait until the promise was fulfilled. And then in verses 16 through 18, he applies it to us today, to the Hebrew Christians and to us today. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeableness of His purpose interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things, and what's the two unchangeable things? God's promise and God's oath. He says, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who are fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. What a mouthful. Man, you could preach a series of messages on that right there. But he's saying, as heirs of the promise, as children of God, He has given us innumerable promises. And He's backed every one of these promises up with an oath. He says, I swear that I'm going to get behind my promises. You can count on me. I'm trustworthy. And I will fulfill every promise I've ever given you if you'll just trust me and if you'll just wait on me. And then look at the fourth thing. He gives some great consolation. Look at how the climax of this section. This hope we have as an what? Anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters what? Within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, we've been anchored to Jesus Christ. Normally you're anchored down, but we're anchored up to Jesus who's in heaven. And our refuge is what? In the innermost place, in that holy of holies. And as we've seen, the entire purpose of the book of Hebrews is to take us out of elementary Christianity to where we mature to have an intimate relationship with our great and faithful high priest within the veil. That is where we find grace and mercy in time of need. That is where we flee to to find rest of faith in life's storms. The anchor is there. And there is where we flee. Now very, very quickly, and I'm going to move through this quickly. Look at application. 
First, in relating to one another, this matter of uh, correction and encouragement. Yes, there are times I must confront others for their sin and failure, but the ultimate goal should be to build up and, and not tear down. The ultimate goal to build up, not tear down. Number two, never limit my comments to the weaknesses of others, but focus more on the strengths of others. Don't limit my comments on the weaknesses of others, but the strengths of By the way, hopefully you parents are picking up it. This is great parental material right here. And this is applicable to all human relationships, at work, neighborhood, church, family, wherever. The third thing, forget the darker side of others and remember their brighter side. Remember the darker side of others, remember their brighter side. And then four, practice expressing to others, and this should be a major for every Christian, acceptance which provides people feelings of security. People need to know that they're secure with you. And when they feel secure with you, they're going to become transparent and open with you. And as they become transparent and open with you, that's going to be your opportunity to step in and minister the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So acceptance, which provides people feelings of security. Appreciation, which provides people feelings of worth. We should be constantly looking for those things that we can thank people for, that where we can sincerely express appreciation, which gives them a sense of worth. The third thing is availability, which provides people feelings of importance. The people that are important to you are those that you make yourself available to. For most people, and especially children, love is spelled with what? T-I-M-E. And not necessarily quantity, but quality time. That when you are with them, you're giving them your undivided attention. And you're connected with them. So acceptance, which provides security. Appreciation, which provides worth. Availability, which gives people a sense of importance. And then affection, which provides people feelings of being loved. You saw that with the writer. But beloved, but beloved, that term of endearment, he was expressing affection for them. And then accountability, and that's a needed balance. And you see that in the book of Hebrews with the writer. Accountability, which provides people feelings of responsibility. So acceptance, appreciation, availability, affection, and accountability. Now look at relating to God as we close this out. And we want to, I want to deal with some of the toughest areas that we come to in life. Number one, when things I believe should never happen, happen, put my faith in God is not in place. And these are realities that all of us will face one time or another in life. When things I believe should never happen, happen, I'm to put my faith in God who is not in us. See, don't confuse God with life. Life on planet Earth is not right. This is a spoiled planet. It's not just. It's not fair. Christians are persecuted. Christians are killed. That is a reality. But God is just. And God is too good to do anything for and there will be a payday someday. Reward for the righteous and judgment for the wicked. Number two, when things I believe should happen, never happen, put my faith in God.
Remember, our high priest Jesus is out of the order of Melchizedek. And what, what was the unique feature of that? He's not just priest, he's what? He's king over all. The one who loves me is in control. The one who shapes my circumstances is Jesus, the one who has the nail scarred hands. Amen. So when things I believe should happen, never happen, put my faith in God. No, he cannot know. And believe in the unchangeableness of his purpose. Number three, when things I believe should happen now, happen much later, sort of like Abraham and Sarah's situation, put my faith in God, he said, through faith and patience we inherit the promises. Don't cut God off too short. When things I believe should happen now, happen much later, put my faith in God. He said, through faith and patience, we inherit the promises. And then four, when caught in life's storms and tossed by waves of doubt and despair, put my faith in Jesus, the anchor of my soul, who is both sure and steadfast, and who anchors me to heaven. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, bless this truth to our hearts. And Lord, as we've been seeing in the book of Hebrews, may we not be dull of hearing and sluggish, but may we be not just hearers of God's word, but doers of God's word. And may we take what we've heard today, whether it's relating to others with encouragement or relating to you with faith, and may we put it into practice, which in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.